Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. One of Australia's most important river systems is ailing. Millions of dead fish stretching for kilometres are just one grim sign of the problem. We ask how things got so bad for the creatures in its waters and the Australians who depend on them. And since the invasion of Ukraine, many Western countries have tried to freeze assets belonging to Russian oligarchs, their mansions, bank accounts, and even the fancy cards. But some of the biggest, flashiest of possessions are slipping through the net. But first... For decades, developing countries have followed a trusted formula for growth. Workers drawn from fields to more productive jobs in the cities have formed the backbone of booming export markets, which in turn has led to economic modernization. It is in factory manufactured textiles that modern Korea accounts for the great majority of its exports to help meet the demands which its economic drive have brought. The model worked in South Korea and in Taiwan in the 1960s, and later it worked in China too, where it helped 800 million people escape poverty. But two more Asian giants, India and Indonesia, are considering very different paths to prosperity. Their choices about how to get rich in a troubled world will matter not just for their people and the investors pouring in billions of dollars of foreign direct investment, or FDI. They will also set an example for scores of other countries that are hoping to develop in the years ahead. So we're talking about India and Indonesia here, and they're incredibly important countries. Avantika Chilkoti is an international correspondent for The Economist. They're important, first of all, economically. The IMF reckons they'll be the fastest growing big economies in the world this year. They're also important commercially, so... Together, they have about 1.7 billion people, so businesses ignore them at their own peril. And thirdly, they're really important strategically. China's asserting itself across Asia and the Pacific, and these counterweights, these countries that at least ostensibly seem committed to liberal democracy, they matter. And the new growth models that they're experimenting with, they'll hold lessons for other emerging markets everywhere. And so, Avantika, why is a new model necessary? I guess that traditional model of labour-intensive manufacturing, lots of exports, the way that China grew, most economists say that's unlikely to work today. So, first of all, globalisation is slowing down. Lots of countries are putting up trade barriers. They're getting quite protectionist. And at the same time, you've had this rise in automation that means cheap labour probably doesn't give countries quite the same edge in manufacturing. 
robots do a lot of the work instead. And so if you're a country like India or Indonesia with a huge, diverse population, you're not going to rely on manufacturing to be the main engine for growth. For both these countries, actually the service sector dominates the economy. They're really open, they have a really high percentage of trade to GDP, but they're taking a different approach when it comes to economic development. And what do these different approaches look like? So both India and Indonesia are playing to their comparative advantage. It's handy to look at the leading export sectors in each country. So India has got a a huge number of engineering graduates every year, really big elite that speaks English. And they're focusing on the IT service sector, on exports of IT services. Indonesia has got loads of natural resources, um, lots of commodities like nickel that are really important as the world goes into this green transition. And so it's really trying to double down on commodities, start refining them and make them a really big source of exports. They're both also using industrial policy to sort of supercharge their economies. They're both trying to broaden the private sector and really grow fast. And how are they getting on? Are these policies working in practice? So the growth figures are really good. They're really quite impressive, as I said before. But you see some differences. So, for example, India has a much more vibrant business sector. If you look at the size of the stock markets locally, or if you look at the number of unicorn businesses valued over a billion dollars that these countries produce. In India, the Prime Minister Narendra Modi, he's got this scheme called sort of production-linked incentives. It's basically subsidies for key sectors like semiconductor production and for solar panels. Indonesia as well is trying to use both sticks and carrots. So it's banning exports of its raw materials, sort of forcing foreign firms to really invest in refining and manufacturing within the country. And I spoke to a senior Indonesian minister called Nadim Makarim, and he really spelled this out for me. So in the green economy, like electric vehicles, we want to we want the full supply chain to be in Indonesia. You know, we have the raw materials, but we're not just going to export nickel to, to, to the rest of the world. We're going to build on that. And that's why... The country's had some success here. So last year, Hyundai, a big car maker, started making electric cars in Indonesia. These export strategies, these industrial policies, they do seem to work. But at the same time, you know, politics matters, both at home and abroad. It's just as important as economic strategy. OK, let's start with the worldview. What impacts are international politics having on their growth plans? So if you're an emerging market today, you really have to decide where you stand on this sort of Sino-American rivalry. And India and Indonesia both take very different sort of stances here. Indonesia stuck to its long-held policy of non-alignment. Joko Widodo, the president known as Jokowi, he has accepted a huge amount of FDI from China. It's one of the largest sources of FDI for the country. And they have this policy of, you know, Indonesia puts Indonesia first. On the other hand, Mr. Modi in India has taken a pretty harsh stance on China. There's been tensions on the borders between the two countries. India, as a result, banned TikTok and other Chinese apps. Chinese companies in India have been facing raids and lots of opposition. And I guess India's strategy is basically to try and lure Western firms 
away from China. They're two very different strategies. And I guess we'll find out which one is the smarter way to go in the, in the coming years. What about the politics at home? Both Narendra Modi and Jokowi came to power in 2014. And both leaders are facing elections next year where they're probably going to have to hand over the baton. You know, these are big democracies. So unlike China, they also need to keep their voters happy. And in my view, I'm much more worried about India's domestic policy. Indonesia has done a pretty good job at making sure, you know, as many people as possible feel included. Jokowi's coalition includes about eight of the ten parties in parliament. In India, Modi's government is centred around the prime minister. It's digging into these divides between Hindus and Muslims in the country. And it gets you thinking, you know, what good is really rapid growth if you've got huge amounts of social division and unrest? And so taking all of this into consideration, where are these countries' economies headed? Economically, if you look at data and forecasts, groups including the IMF really expect India to do very well in the coming years. Um, Indonesia does have this catch that the economy's growth really hinges on what commodity prices globally are doing. I suppose personally, I then worry a little bit more about the politics, the long term for India. At the moment, it's not holding back the economy that you have these divisions, that you have democracy really being eroded, freedom of speech really being eroded in India. But if that starts to affect foreign investment or if it starts to create social unrest at home, I wonder if it'll start to chip away at the economic model too. Avantika, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Ari. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. in March, the river's flow slowed. That, in turn, caused the death of much of its marine life. It's just the latest illustration of a troubling trend. The carcasses of millions of dead fish coated the river's surface, covering some parts of it from bank to bank. Eleanor Whitehead is our Australia and New Zealand correspondent. There were yabbies, which are Australian freshwater lobster 
clawing their way over each other, kind of out of the river in piles because they were suffocating in there. The trail of dead fish led for tens of kilometres. One local told me it was more than 100 kilometres long. So what is it exactly that's caused this die-off? So this isn't actually the first time this has happened on the Darling River near Menindee. There was another smaller mass die-off in 2018 and 2019 when Australia was in a drought. This time the die-off has happened after years of rain when you should think the river would be in pretty good health. But what has happened is, is for three years it's rained really intensely in eastern Australia and in January the Darling flooded. That flooded towns like Menindee, near where this die-off has happened, and it washed tons of organic matter, leaves and branches, as well as probably you know some chemicals and fertilizers back into the river, and that has caused bacteria to bloom, and that blooming bacteria sucks oxygen out of the river, causing what's called a, a black water event, and that suffocates fish. There were a few very hot days around the same time that this was happening and it's possible that a kind of flash of of hot weather made things worse because warm water holds less oxygen. And then in turn, when you have fish carcasses decomposing in the river, that's taking more oxygen from the water. So it kind of fuels the cycle. So on one hand, it's kind of showing you that the pressures on the river system are rising with more extreme climate change because things like these droughts and floods are getting more frequent and more severe. Um, But it also reflects the kind of bigger problems of mismanagement and overuse of this river system for years, which actually kind of worry the locals much more than the climate change does. When you say mismanagement, what precisely do you mean? Really the concern in the Darling and the Murray River that it joins to form the the biggest river system in in eastern Australia is about over-extraction over the years and overuse for agriculture and especially for cotton. The waters of, of this river system have been fought over for decades by four different states and overuse for agriculture has drained the river dry on several occasions. And what ecologists say is that this kind of history of overuse and mismanagement makes events like this much worse. So there's things like, you know, the water isn't flowing through the river system naturally. It's controlled by dozens of public and private weirs and dams. A weir close to Menindee was closed. That kind of prevents the fish from escaping upstream into lakes where they might be able to get into more healthy water. And kind of more generally, the putrid water isn't getting flushed out. And after the recent floods, some water quotas, so the allocations for waters that is allowed to be taken out of the river, was lifted so high that farmers could theoretically drain some tributaries of the Darling entirely. So there is a feeling among both ecologists and people that live along the river that this is a kind of system that is paying the price for years of mismanagement and is sending a message that it's on the brink of collapse. And there's a feeling that, you know, this has happened before, it's happening frequently enough that it's telling you that something is seriously wrong with this system. When you say it, it's getting near collapse, uh, what, what are the costs besides the, the lives of so many millions of fish? So this is a river system that could hardly be more important. It winds its way down from Queensland through New South Wales and Victoria down to South Australia. It's covering an area about the size of Ethiopia. It is Australia's agricultural heartland. It supports about 40% of its farms, billions of dollars of agriculture, all of Australia's rice, most of its cotton, a lot of its its fruit and wine. It provides drinking water for millions of people. It's a source of tourism and it's hugely important 
ecologically. Uh, so it kind of breathes life into the eastern interior. It supports really important habitats like wetlands, which are important for native species and migratory water birds. So that kind of makes things like this mass die-off seem all the more concerning. And is the government waking up to the, the seriousness of the problem here, having seemingly ignored it until now? Well, I think that people have known about the seriousness of this problem for years. I mean, there was an agreement signed back in 2012 that set out to try and conserve water between the different states that use it. And it wanted to do that while still supporting agriculture and the communities that depend on the river. But it hasn't stopped the river from running dry a few years ago. You know, it hasn't stopped awful events like these die-offs happening. So many locals blame a kind of lack of enforcement, a lack of will. You know, there's more water that has been siphoned from the river, they say, than is, is technically allowed. And, you know, there are targets for this management scheme, sustainability targets that look like they're not going to be met. It's not a river that has been returned to good health. And, and the way that many people see it, something drastic is, is going to have to change. This seems plenty drastic enough, though, to, to get to the government's attention, is it not? You would hope so. I mean, there is a new premier in New South Wales. There's just been an election in the state after this mass mortality happened, and he's headed straight out to Menindi, out to the Darling River. And he says, look, he's trying to learn from locals. Um, he wants to, to hear the lessons of the past so that this doesn't happen again. But they've also heard never again before, and this has happened again and at the same time, climate change isn't getting any better. Nell, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Imagine you're stepping aboard the super yacht Amadea. On the ship's deck is the beach club. A 10-metre hand-tiled pool is lined with plush lounges. You're ready for a day of soaking up rays on the Mediterranean. And for dinner, you'll be seated in the 16-person dining room, furnished with an elegant water feature. After dinner, drinks will be served as the hand-painted piano with its 24-karat gold detail is played. The Amadea is among the biggest and most expensive yachts in the world, it originally sold for an estimated $325 million. And yet the Amadea has seen very little of the high seas in recent times. The Amadea was one of the first yachts to be seized. It happened last May when the Fijian authorities executed a warrant which the US government had asked them to. Neil Thompson writes about international affairs for The Economist. It's part of a campaign to capture the assets of Russian oligarchs who've been tied to President Vladimir Putin. And it's believed to belong to Suleiman Kerimov, one of the Russian oligarchs who has been sanctioned. However, the seizure of Mr. Kerimov's yacht is quite isolated. Apart from the Amadea, there's only been three other cases where Russian yachts have been successfully confiscated, as far as we know. And so why is it so difficult to seize yachts? It seems like they're pretty big, so they should be the easiest of assets to find. Well, several reasons. First of all, the yachts themselves do have tracking technology on board, which is how a lot of them were initially traced. But the crews have been switching these off 
Another thing is that these yachts don't typically fly the Russian flag anymore when they're docked in port. They tend to fly a third country's flag in order to conceal their owners. And finally, a lot of oligarchs have a long-standing habit of using front companies to conceal the true ownership of their assets, including their yachts. This is a practice that goes right the way back to the 1990s and predates the Ukrainian war, but it has served to shield yachts from being seized once they've been detained, despite the suspicions of the authorities. Okay, but even instances where the yachts weren't seized, have they at least been stopped from being on the water? Oh, yes, absolutely. The the process of confiscating a yacht may be quite long and convoluted, but you've seen plenty of cases where suspected Russian owners of super yachts have seen their boat detained by the authorities and prevented from leaving port. So basically what you have is a few cases where the ship's been confiscated and are now heading towards auction. A lot of cases where yachts are currently in limbo, running up maintenance, labour and harbour costs, they require a lot of care and attention to keep them seaworthy. And in some cases, it's been around a year now since sanctions started to be enforced over Ukraine. So some of these boats will have been in limbo for sort of six, 10, 12 months now. So what does this mean for all these countries where these yachts usually sail? You you see some situations where local governments which detained the yachts are starting to lose a bit of patience with the burden of paying for the sort of upkeep and maintenance fees. In the case of Antigua and Barbuda, one Caribbean country which has had several oligarchs' yachts sail through it, there were two which were believed to have been owned by Roman Abramovich, the former Russian owner of British football team Chelsea FC, and he has been sanctioned for his alleged ties to President Putin. However, the Antiguan government decided that they did not want to be involved in enforcing US sanctions and ultimately allowed Mr. Abramovich's yachts to depart for Turkey, where a great many of these yachts have been hiding. However, there is a third yacht, which was also in Antigua, called the Alpha Nero, and that yacht was basically abandoned in the Antiguan government's main harbour. And this situation continued for quite some time until the Antiguans lost patience with the yacht and decided to declare it a navigation hazard and put it up for auction. Okay, well, this all sounds like quite the headache, but tell us a little bit about the vessels that were seized by the Americans. What's happening with those? Well, in the handful of cases where a vessel has been shown to belong to a Russian oligarch who's been sanctioned, there has basically been an effort to sell them off with a plan to send the money to Ukraine to find either its war effort or its reconstruction. There aren't a lot of potential buyers, basically because the market for super yachts is quite a, a limited one. And the fact that, you know, you might not want to annoy influential Russian oligarchs who have extra legal reach as well as, as the ability to afford high priced lawyers. So despite their notional value, it's likely that any yachts which are sold by the US government will only fetch a relatively low price. OK, so if they're only going to get knockdown prices for them, what's the point? Well, several things. First of all, even a knockdown price for a super yacht could still raise tens of millions of dollars for Ukraine. Secondly, it is quite a headline grabbing act. A lot of the Russian elite can't be too happy that they're appearing in negative press stories and being shown to have their sort of status symbols being taken away from them. So yes, it's all highlighting that while there's not much precedent for this, 
Moving forwards, Russia can expect to face significant economic penalties for the invasion and the conflict while it continues. Neil, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure, no problem. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, what are you waiting for? Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.